You're listening to The Cinema Freaks, brought to you by Outcast Multimedia. Are you an Outcast? Monthly Mainstream Mockery with Leisha Rollis, Podcasting's Rich Sigfrid, and Samantha Kyle. This is gonna so what are we fun. talking about tonight, kids? What's the deal? What's going on? Well, Why am I on the phone? We're going to be talking about Star Wars. Uh, Sam and Lee suggested that you are a Star Wars geek and would have a lot of good input on this. I, I'm a big geek. That's, that's true. And uh, I've devoted the lion's share of my... Yeah, this is sad. Uh, <laughs> I know a lot about Star Wars. Uh, I know a lot about... I know a lot about the movies. I know a lot about the making of the movies. I know a lot about. It's all right, brother. Let it out. This is this is Star Wars Geeks uh, Anonymous. It's fine. Just you know, say your first name. Say you're a Star Wars geek. Admit it. Uh, I'm Jeff Himes. I'm a Star Wars geek. That's right. Own that bitch. Hi, it's all right. Jeff. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Sam. Hi, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, I instantly feel at home. Great. <laughs> we'll be having an episode one burning outside on the front lawn. Oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, so I like Star Wars. Pretty cool. What else you guys want? Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Jeff Hines. Now, this gentleman, he's got some experience with Star Wars. I'm going to let him fill you in. He's been a fan for a while, but I'm going to let you, uh, Jeff, fill in the audience on what your area of or level of fandom is with Star Wars? To give you the short, short version, um, my parents were, uh, they, they were uh, film buffs uh, when I was a kid. Uh, some of the earliest movies I remember seeing were, you know, I actually can remember seeing um, Star Trek The Motion Picture from a pumpkin seat the back seat of a 78 station wagon at a drive-in theater. So, I don't, you know, I don't know if that tells you anything, but... Um, you know, uh, there was just something about these movies uh, that my parents felt that it was important, for whatever reason, to uh, make us watch. Um, you know, now that I'm grown up and I got, you know, I have a kid of my own, and you know, I'm kind of the same way. I think it's that, um, you know, Star Wars as a film by itself really kind of represented a. I don't know necessarily a break, but uh, an, uh, kind of an introduction uh, between old Hollywood and new Hollywood in that, um, you know, Lucas uh, was working with uh, Francis Coppola um, at the time. You know, I don't know if anybody remembers American Zeotrope, but uh, that had a lot to do with uh, sort of the inception of Star Wars. Uh, American Graffiti, which was Lucas's film, uh, before Star Wars was a big deal to my parents. And, of course, half the actors in American Graffiti ended up being in, you know, Laverne and Shirley, Mark and Mindy, um, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, I don't know. I just think they recognized that there was something different and there was something special about these films. And, you know, for me, uh, growing up, you know, when I look back at my childhood, you know, I think, okay, you know, in my younger years were dominated by, you know, Transformers, G.I. Joe, that kind of thing. But, you know, honestly, I would say that like, the biggest influence uh, for me as, you know, a writer and a, an artist and a cartoonist uh, was Star Wars. You know, there was just something different about those films and there was something that resonated uh, with me. And, you know, I think I, my parents had, a you know, a lot to do with that. Um, That's so, awesome. I mean, that, 
Well, I mean, that's the background. Uh, you know, it's not real interesting, but, you know. That's <laughs> well, what's your current level? Uh, uh, my current level. <laughs> my current level. How high are you posting right now? <laughs> uh, I would <laughs> It's funny that you ask. Um, well, um, you know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, you, you have no concept, at least we didn't in the early 80s, that um, movies uh, translated into toys. Um, and I can remember one of the first things I ever asked for when I was a kid was uh, we took a family trip down to Tennessee to visit my uncle, and he had a VCR, you know, big technology in those days, not Betamax, <laughs> by the way. And uh, he had Empire Strikes Back on VHS, and that was the first time I'd seen it, and that was a big deal. You know, it was like my birthday, this was a big treat, we're going to put you on a couch and make you watch TV that is not TV. And um, so, you know, and I, and I remember the, the Hoth scene, at the very beginning of the movie, and, you, you know, you see the Anak Walkers coming across the the horizon and you know when i was a kid i remember i saw that and i was like oh, i want that i i don't know what it is but i must have it and you know i begged my parents forever and then like you know lo and behold christmas of you know 82 83 here's this ad at walker under the tree and you know again uh i think lucas was a genius in cross promotion in that when he went to, uh, you know, every, all the other major studios had turned down this movie. And finally, uh, and of course, you know, it figures now that I'm being recorded, I forget the guy's name. But um, George Lucas? He kind of had an in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, not that name. Uh, the guy at 20th Century Fox, he kind of had an in with this guy over at Fox and... The guy watched, you know, he read the script, he read the treatment, and he thought, wow, this could really be something. And um, so he, you know, after Universal and Paramount and everybody had kind of passed on it, um, you know, this guy, you know, I really want to say Lou Adler, but you know, I, I will not commit that that is correct, um, had said, you know, bring it over here, we'll, we'll give it a green light. And so they did, and that was about late 75, early 76, and, um, you know, one of the things that they said was, you know, okay, well, uh, how much do you want to make this movie? And he said, well, you know, basically, and all negotiations aside, what it came down to was, he's, you know, Fox took a distribution, you know, they, they got everything on distribution uh, for the film, and Lucas did something that was you know, fairly unheard of, and the studios didn't even give a darn. Uh, he said, I want all licensing and merchandising rights. And at the time, that was like peanuts. And so 20th Century Fox really thought that they were getting a deal on this by saying, okay, cool, we get all distribution, you get whatever that is, and that's fine. And Lucas, uh, you know, if you go back and you read your news over the last two years, was just given an award by the American Toy Manufacturers Association or, you know, whatever their, the letters mean. And, uh, you know, as being the greatest uh, toy maker of all time, basically. And the reason being was, is he wanted the kids to be able to kind of, you know, live in, reenact, play in that universe. And so, you know, he went to Kenner and gave us the modern three and three-quarter action, uh, action figure. 
And um, so, you know, I, I mean, really, as a kid, it was that was where I was at. You know, I was like, you know, that's really cool, and I like aliens and robots and spaceships mm-hmm. and that whole thing, and I like to be able to play with them and, you know, buy me toys. Um, but when I, when I got older, much older, um, and kind of rediscovered these films, and, you know, by this time, of course, the toys are all gone because, you know, um, I was trying to get laid <laughs> by that point. So... Uh, <laughs> It's like, can I sure. say that? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, you're cool. Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, you know, that's that's not really cool. Hip with the ladies. So, um, but I went back and I watched the movies again. You know, I think it was the this was like ninety five, ninety six. The th thx uh, edition had been released where they kind of went back and cleaned up some stuff. You know. Um, and I watched them again. You know, I got them for Christmas, and I was like, oh, yeah, cool, Star Wars. I remember that. That's awesome. And I watched them, and, and I started to actually get a lot of what he was trying to do with these films. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to trash fanboys. You know, I am a fanboy. Um, but at the same time, though, um, I think that people have had 30 years to obsess over these films, and I think that I, my opinion is the bulk of, you know, the, the audience or the, the, the fandom kind of missed the boat on what he was trying to do. And, you know, uh, I, I read a book about him uh, years ago called Myth Maker, which was kind of a... It was kind of a biography of George Lucas and a making of the original trilogy and an intro to the the prequels. And one of the things that, you know, his big influence growing up was Flash Mm -hmm. Gordon Conquers the Universe, which was, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, an old black and white serial uh, that he watched as a kid. And, you know, the acting was uh, paper thin at best. Um you know, uh, the special effects were horrific. Uh, but what he really, what really kind of he latched onto was that whole, you know, that epic saga, good versus evil, iconic characters. We all know Flash is good because he's blonde, and, you know, and we all know Ming is bad because he's got that pointy mustache and goatee. <laughs> and, you know, and, and everybody loves robots and monkeys and zombies and that kind of thing. But, um, and, and that's really where he came at it, is he wanted to make a film. People could walk into the theater. Remember, this is 77. He started working on the film in 75. So we're, you know, we're kind of, you know, like I said, we're coming into that new Hollywood kind of thing where people are making movies that force people to think. You know, we're past the point of Breakfast at Tiffany's and Pillow Talk and, you know, those kind of films, and, yeah, I mean, I think the the closest that we had had up to that point was, um, you know, Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey, which I think went over mm-hmm. the heads of everyone. You know, it's Arthur C. Clarke, and you're going to try and make that into a movie, and, <laughs> you know. Uh, no. And, uh, you know, interesting side note, Clark hated or uh, Kubrick hated Star Wars because he thought it was just flashed and 
showmanship, and he felt that his was the superior movie, and so he always kind of trashed Lucas in private circles as being kind of a hack. Um, but, you know, really, that was Lucas's point. He was like, I want to make a movie that people can walk into the theater, forget about the real world uh, for two hours or 90 minutes, whatever, and just be entertained. Have a good time. And um, look where that has brought us today. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I'm not here to talk about the wedding singer or terms of endearment, but, um, the, but, you know, I, you know, I thought, you know, I thought, you know, that's, that's kind of cool. You know, um, he never meant for these movies to be taken that seriously. Um, it was just kind of, you know, you know, everybody knows at this point that, you know, uh, Lucas was a big fan of Joseph Campbell. He'd read the books. He'd read Heroes. He adapted it for film. He understood the archetypes. Yeah. Um, Exactly. And, you know, so his thing was, you know, he was very methodical in the roles that, you know, he he cast these characters. You know, you have Obi-Wan Kenobi, the wise mentor. You have Luke, who is the reluctant hero. You have Han Solo, who is the trickster. You have Princess Leia, who confusingly was like love interest then sister and i'm not going to get into that um, and then and then uh bla- blazing the frontier of hairstyles that is true yeah. exactly Which set, the, yeah. set the tone for amidala and then are we talking about luke's hair <laughs> many a roller disco was set ablaze by um in the late 70s by um cinnabon hairdos <laughs> now there was an important product tie-in that was uh, came back in style yeah, exactly. I know. Could you see an entire line of like earmuffs? <laughs> headphones. It would have been like that. Yeah, headphones. Exactly. With the wraparound, you know, I don't know. But, um, you know, so this, and the other thing was, too, he figured, I never, I, I don't have another shot at this. I get one film. So I got to kind of wrap it all up in one, you know, one package. And so, um, but... And, you know, having kind of done some research on, on the subject over the years, in light of the prequels, which, you know, everybody takes issue with. Um, I like this them. Entire, well, I like them. <laughs> I, can turn my, I, can turn, I can turn my brain off and, and enjoy them just as, Oh, I know what I was going to say. After watching Highlander 2, <laughs> I've learned to turn my brain off and just be in... Entertained by explosions and, and sword play, um, but uh, it, you know the the thing was is like I'm never going to get another shot of this. So, um, you know, uh, but he had written all that backstory. Um, he had basically written the bulk of the prequel material before he wrote New Hope. And if you go back and, and you, you find, if you can find an original VHS copy of New Hope, you will notice that there is no subtitle. It says Star Wars. That's it. Uh, it wasn't until years later, somewhere around the THX edition, I think, don't quote me, that episode four Actually, there was a re-release of all three of the movies um, leading, it was either leading up to or just shortly after um, 
Return of the Jedi, and that was the first time in theaters that it was put on uh, the on Star Wars that it was Episode Four. And actually, okay. you know, speaking of the episode numbers, that it's varied over the ages. Um, at one point in time, it was I think twelve, and then it's it was dropped to nine, and then of course it's. It's well, it's Roman numerals, yeah. I <laughs> what is this XII? What, what, what does that mean? It must be seven. That's what we think. But no, there, um, Lucas has waffled very often in how much of uh, the story was going to be out there, how big the story <laughs> was, how small the story was. And, you know, there, there's something else. Um, oh, yeah. I think I told Lee this before, something that a lot of people don't realize about the Star Wars movies, because we, we can look at the uh, the prequel trilogy as the ones that Lucas, you know, wasn't able to fit into the other movies. And so he wanted to still put them out. But the original story was very different. Originally, um, you know, th- all of the the Skywalker clan were going to be little people. And if we if we take that. No, I'm, I'm very serious. He what? was originally going to be using you know, midgets, dwarfs, little people, whatever, as the uh, as the heroes of the story. So if we take that bit of knowledge, we know that you mean uh, I'm Jedi not sure about all Jedi, small? but all the um, all of the Skywalker clan was Skywalker. But if we take that and we see that with if we look at the prequel oh. trilogy where he's just <laughs> throwing out all of the, you know the ideas that he had, we can see that he doesn't really have a whole lot of ideas. And yes, just like Jeff said, yes, Willow is the culmination of everything that he wanted to do with Star Wars, but didn't. If you take a look at it, you've got, you know, the, the heroes of the little people. He's given a gift from the old wizard of the, of the, the, of his local area of his, his tribe, whatever. And they go to, um, they go on this grand quest that is given to him by this old man along his way. I mean, we can take this, the sprites or as uh, R2 and 3PO, they're kind of the comedic, uh, the comedic characters. We've also got mm-hmm. the brave rogue that falls in love with the villain's daughter. I mean, if you if you take a look at those movies, I mean, they seriously are Star Wars light. Although I think Willow, to a certain degree, did a few things better. Well, that's because and Mark that's Howard the biggest directed. thing. Yes, all all of the Lucas directed <laughs> Star Wars movies really aren't all that good. Um, I. <laughs> well, um, I have a point to make Go on that, if, if you have a second. Um, <laughs> maybe not a point, but an insight. Um, you know, like I said, you know, I read that, you know, the, the book about Lucas Mythmaker, and it is a very inter- in, in an interesting book, and it really gives a lot of in- insight into how these films were actually made. There's another book that just came out a week ago, I think it's called The Making of Star Wars, that has a lot of, you know... Uh, interviews or so forth that were kind of buried in the archives. Um, but the thing that I found most interesting, and I agree with Rich, in that the non-Lucas-directed films were the better. Uh, and of the original trilogy, I would say the only one that counts is Empire. Um, because he had nothing to do with the directing of that film. Urban Kirshner, uh, who was sort of a mentor-slash-hero of Lucas up to that point. I think he'd done one other film of no called Tulane Blacktop. Oh, I have that. Um, do you? Okay. Yes, I do. Um, I, I've never seen it. Um, I think Easy Rider. Uh, I, I, I do know that, like, Kirshner directed RoboCop 2, I think. That's the only thing I know of that he's done. <laughs> um, like but it. Lucas, as a director, and I think everybody, this is nothing new, um, 
does not like working exactly. with people. Uh, the actual making of the original Star Wars film made him physically ill. Um, by the end of production, uh, he was pretty much ready to call it quits altogether. Um, he did not like the impre- you know, the uh, unpredictability of the actors. He did not like, uh, you know, John Dykstra. I mean, that's famous. Lucas, the falling out between Lucas and John Dykstra over the special effects of the film. Um, you know, he very much was of a mind that if anything was going to get done right, he had to do it himself. Um, and so he was always at odds, uh, you know, from my understanding, with his production crew. Um, when it came time to make Empire, you know, Irving Kirshner, you know, obviously a lot more experienced than Lucas and very much the kind of director that uh, reads the material knows how to direct people, knows how to make bad lines into good lines. Um, you know, the example that I would give is the, you know, the development of the love story between Han and Leia. Um, Kirshner actually developed that over the course of, like, five scenes, I think, where we go from the beginning of the film where, like, I hate you to the end of the film where I love you, I know. Uh, one of the one of the classic all-time, you know, bad lines in a movie. Um, I love But that he made movie. it... Wow, he made it work. I think work. you used that and line on me. I would not be surprised. He's not so good with the ladies. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, Lee. Um, but, uh, but Lucas does his directing on the cutting room floor. And, you know, uh, Harrison Ford, one of his biggest problems with Lucas on the first film was... You know, we did all these takes. We did, like, 50 takes of the same scene, and we never got so much as a do this, do that. It, every take was, okay, great. Let's or or faster, more intense. And then faster, more intense. Yeah. Every, you know, <laughs> everyone's seen that outtake where Harrison Ford comes back in and goes, oh, the boom mic was in the shot. Oh, okay. Let me guess. <laughs> faster, more intense. You know, uh, the the other the other famous line from Harrison Ford was, you know, uh, George, you can write. Which I actually have something about that. I think, Uh, um, if if I may cut into your point, sir, I think that (laughs) I think that George Lucas actually, I think what he tried to do was kind of follow in the footsteps of uh, a great writer like uh, Tolkien. Whereas Tolkien would create, you know, entire languages with the elves. You see a lot of sci-fi people, you know, in Star Trek, you've got the uh, Klingon language. Well, George Lucas, I think, tried to take it a step further, where instead of creating, uh, you know, a, a language for people to speak or an accent with which to, you know, speak uh, regular English dialogue, I think he honestly tried to create a new way to talk. And one of the best examples of that is actually Yoda. Because he, and I think that was where he kind of slowly tried to introduce that a little bit. Yoda, who spoke, you know, in very, you know, reversing words, moving them around and whatnot, uh, he spoke in a very strange way. But if we take a look at the Jedi, I think he was honestly trying to create a new form of speaking, a new order or a, or a way to carry the words through sentences. Now, the problem is, uh, to a certain degree, like yes, um, or 
but I think new. I would say more more akin. <laughs> well, yeah, to and that's English, really. I mean, if you look right. at the way that he portrayed the Jedi, I mean, they were supposed to be the upper echelon of, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. nobility. And so far mm-hmm. as right and wrong, you know, I, yeah. I, I mean, we could go off on a whole other tangent about, the, you know, the way Mace Windu speaks mm-hmm. in episode one uh, versus the way that any of the minor characters that were Imperial or, um, you know, Alliance mm-hmm. spoke in the, in, in the original trilogy. And I think and Lucas I, I did get, it to a fault, though. He did it too well because... You know, I mean, look, I understand that, you know, geeks were all very intelligent. We can, you know, follow along with stuff like that. But Star Wars was not made for the geeks. It was made for um, essentially for kids. And I think a lot of that was very much, and especially the prequel trilogy, it was very much lost on the audience. And I think that's where somebody can do a job so well that it gets lost. Another thing, like you said, with Mace, the way he spoke. And uh, this also ties into what you said earlier about George Lucas, the way he directs, that he, he directs from the cutting room floor. George Lucas is much more of a, of a um, he's a tremendous visual stylist, but the problem is I think he would make a much better um, special effects director than a, you know, uh, than an actor director. If you take a look at the novelizations, I'm sure you oh, read I the novelization read of Revenge of the Sith by Stover, uh, Matthew Stover. It's details oh really uh i i didn't read it i just kind of like flipped to random parts of the book and kind of uh you know, i would read yeah. excerpts and then i went and saw yeah. the film i didn't want to read the book before i saw the film because we all know that you know the book right. is always and better than the film because right well the, the thing is it. is that um with the novelization of episode three and even going back and checking out the novelizations of the other prequel trilogies, it is so much better because then you can actually get inside the characters' heads. What I honestly believe is I have the feeling that Stover wrote the book, Lucas gave the book to everybody and said, this is your motive, the character's motivation. This is how you feel. This is how you think. This is how you should act. Because after reading it, everything that uh, Samuel Jackson does makes sense. The way uh, Hayden Christensen plays Anakin makes sense. Even in episode two, when he was whiny, it makes sense then. And I think. Well, you're kind of no, that's right. Yeah, uh, not to interrupt. You're 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 kind of getting rid of my uh, or getting not getting rid, uh, getting ahead. Sure, sure, go for it. Uh, if I could wrap up my my first point real quick. Um, and, and that was with directing style. Um, the original films, uh, the script and the screenplay was written first. The book was written afterwards. Um, and the, the point that I was uh, trying to make originally, before I kind of rambled on, uh, was that Empire is the best of the original trilogy because Irvin Kirshner threw Lucas off the set. Uh, Lucas was constantly on the set and kind of meddling and getting in the way and say, that's not what I had in mind, or this is blah, blah, blah. And Kirshner said... Uh, you hired me wow, to do this job. That. Get off my set. Yeah, and there's, there's kind of, that was where the the falling the, the uh. falling out between those two directors was, um, because Lucas uh, was the producer of Empire. He was not the director. Um, and then flash forward to Re- uh, Return of the Jedi. Um, Lucas chose Richard Marquand to direct this film. Now, no one will speak ill in Hollywood of Richard Marquand. 
only because Richard Marquand died immediately after the film was completed. Um, and the thing was, Richard Marquand, and no one to this day understands why you would choose someone with no experience in a special effects film to direct a special effects heavy film. Richard Marquand did not understand the purpose of a blue screen. He did not understand why they weren't building these big, huge sets that they were going to put a speeder bike in front of. Um, you know, the special effects crew had to come in and kind of explain to him, okay, look, just pretend, uh, you know, uh, yeah, the speeder bike's in front of a blue screen and Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher are, you know, going to ride this thing. But, you know, uh, your second unit director is out in the California Redwoods right now with uh, a steady cam on a track running through the woods right now. And we're going to composite these two things. Um, and so because of his inexperience and his lack of knowledge in that area, Lucas yes. constant. Hello? Yeah, we're here. Oh, okay. I'm oh, sorry. I heard a click. made <laughs> 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 my welcome. I knew I shouldn't have brought out. I knew I shouldn't have mentioned Richard Marquand. Um, <laughs> like anybody remembers. Anyway. Uh, so Lucas was on the set every day of the film and eventually pretty much for all intents and purposes took over the film. Um, Marquand was more of a PA than he was the director by the end of production. And I think it's, I think it's obvious when you watch the films and if you compare New Hope, Return of the Jedi and all three prequels, uh, to Empire Strikes Back, they all have a very distinct, distinctly different mm -hmm. flavor from Empire. And I think, like you said, you know, the movies were for the kids and everyone kind of missed that. I think that is where that disconnect came in. Because Kirshner's thought and Harrison Ford seconded was that Han Solo be sacrificed for the Alliance. Give this two-dimensional character some meaning... We've already introduced Lando Calrissian, who is also a trickster character. We don't need two. <laughs> Which is why Lando gets to fly off with Chewbacca at the end of Empire, Solo taken away by Boba Fett, a la Clerks. <laughs> um, and then uh, Jedi, we get a bunch of Muppets. Um, because... You know, and I hate to, you know, I hate to, to, to say this, but, you know, Lucas did say, let's market teddy bears um, in Jedi. And his thing was, you know, I don't disagree with his thinking in that, okay, if you're going to tell a three-act play in the first one, it's happy. In the second one, everybody loses. In the third one, you bring it all back. Um, but I think he kind of, I think he was tired of the movies. I think that... Marquand was an exceptional disappointment. Um, most Ooh. people don't know this, but Marquand was not the first choice of director. Um, David Lynch oh, God. of Twin Peaks fame was the first choice of director for uh, Jedi, but he was working on Dune. <laughs> and so he <laughs> turned it down. Um can you imagine? Oh, God, that, was, that would friggin' rock. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
uh, we'd all be scratching our heads going, what did that thing mean with the Ewok and the refrigerator <laughs> and the white horse? And, and actually, that? a lot of people don't realize that Darth Vader um, was going to be the original killer of Laura Palmer. Right, exactly. Nobody knew that. <laughs> Anakin Skywalker killed Laura Palmer. You know, Jedi Come Walk With Me. That was the original uh, title of the film before Revenge of the uh, Jedi, before Return of the Jedi. Uh, but yeah, and so, you know, I, I just think that I can watch the film, I can be entertained, I can let my daughter watch these films and be entertained. I still will not let her watch Revenge of the Sith yet. Um, because I think that was pretty harsh. And honestly, Revenge of the Sith, the whole Jedi death montage scene really surprised me. Oh, um, I was just saying that I, I did not think Lucas as a director, uh, you know, being kid-friendly as he is, was going to put that scene in the film. And I thought that that was the most powerful scene. Um, the mix of, you know, the music uh, and, you know, just the, the heavy tone of the music and the you get to see all these secondary characters that you know we've all kind of started to care about in um phantom menace and you know attack of the clones uh getting iced uh by their own armies by their own troops um and you know i i i thought that you know mace windu of course was you know got the best send-off um, and I think that's largely because Sam Jackson went to George Lucas after Attack of the Clones and said, look, I know I'm going to die, but don't make me die like a bitch. And uh, that's a direct quote, and I, and I don't think any of us could look Sam Jackson in the eye and say, I'm going to kill you like a bitch. Well, you, you know, know I, was kind, I was honestly um, surprised that there was um, <laughs> not more of a confrontation between Anakin and Mace. I was surprised by a lot of things. I was surprised Yoda gave up so easily. I was surprised that, um, you know, Mace didn't take Anakin at his word. I was surprised that Anakin did what he did. Um, you know, and frankly, I was surprised that Mace kind of made that turn to the dark side and, you know, pulled a Palpatine and said, no, he's too powerful to live. We have to kill him. And, you know, well, ultimately, I mean, that, point, see, that was the thing with, uh, in the novelization, you find out that Mace Windu's fighting style, which this also explains why he's always so pissed off. It's, uh, I think it's called Vapid. I, it's a very, I, it's something like that, Varpod, something like that. By the way, uh, Lee and Sam, you guys are bringing up a lot of static whenever you talk. Hmm. Yeah, is there? Can, can you hear, like, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, turn your radio. We're getting a lot down. of people. Whoa, a lot of feedback. <laughs> Sorry, but um, I, but we'll just. I I don't know if it's coming across in the signal or if it's something on your end. Is it because our computer like goes to sleep every three minutes and we keep hitting the mouse and now we're like, maybe to a certain degree? Okay. Why don't you guys uh, disconnect and then I'll try to bring you back in? Okay. Uh, shut down Skype and fire okay. it back up okay. and I'll bring you guys back in. Okay. No, just All right. okay. um, but I'll go ahead and go on with my point um, while I'm waiting for them. Uh, let's see. Let me get that ready, though, to add callers. Okay. All right. The fighting style that Mace Windu has borders on the dark side. It's a very uh, aggression-driven mm. uh, form of combat. 
Um, that's to a certain degree. It's yes. If you look at him, his fighting style and stances and everything is very close to Palpatine's. Yes. And I, I, I remembered reading something and again, it was the thing, the kind of thing attack of the clones was coming out. I went in, I opened the book. I kind of scanned to random sections and fighting style was supposed to play a major part mm-hmm. in the next two films. Um, I didn't see it. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, Mace fights a certain way, Yoda fights a certain way, Dooku fights a certain way, but there was never any explanation. And, again, I think that's another point where the audience was lost on good, you know, light side, dark side. Um, But, yeah, and, and again, that kind of strengthens my, my earlier point, which was Mace had the Emperor. Mm hmm. He could have ended it right then. Yoda had the Emperor. He could have ended it right then. I mean, it was obvious by, you know, the midpoint of the showdown between Yoda and the Emperor that the Emperor had lost. I mean, if all you got left is, I'm (laughs) going to throw the Senate at you, uh, you've lost. And if you're a little guy like Yoda who can, you know, miraculously fight that quick... Come on, dude, you know, force summon your lightsaber, jump up on, you know, a couple of pods and cut his damn head off. Let's be done with it. Well, it seems very much, and especially um, with, uh, especially in the fight between Anakin and Obi-Wan, is that they want the bad guys to come over to the light side. They want them to give up. And I think that's why, what Lucas tried to establish, and that's why it was such a shock when Mace said, no, we got to kill this mofo, otherwise he's just going to, you know, he's just going to get away. He's too dangerous to live. And I think a lot of that has to deal with the fact that most of the Jedi want the good guys to, or the bad guys to come back over. The only one that didn't really... Well, they want to win Well, exactly, and I think the only one that didn't really seem to be... Um, Qui-Gon when he was fighting mate, uh, fighting Maul, but Qui-Gon always seemed to be figuring out, yeah. okay, there's something bigger to this. Cause if you watch him when he's fighting, it seems like he's always thinking he never gets angry or anything like that. And I don't think even though he was the best swordsman in the Jedi council, I don't think it had a lot to do with the fact that he's trying to concentrate so much on the fight. It always looked like he was trying to see what the bigger picture was because he was always telling, he was always telling Anakin to look well, at the bigger and, picture. And, and, well, and I, and yeah, and that's a good point. From my a friend of mine, he and I, we have this conversation <laughs> at least once a month, and we always come back to Qui Gon, and I always throw the Book of the Wills out there. You know, we we heard leading up to Revenge of the Sith, there was all this stuff about the Book of the Wills, it was never mentioned in the movie. Um, and basically, you know, the Book of the Wills was supposed to be the source mm-hmm. of both the Jedi and the Sith, and Qui Gon was supposed to have been like the only modern Jedi besides Dooku that had read it. And his point was, you know, um, like you said, you know, um, you can do all these things without being angry. You can do all these things without giving over to the dark side and in doing the doing it that way, you become more powerful. You transcend death. You know, you, you know, like Obi-Wan says, you know, if you strike me down, I shall become more mm-hmm. powerful than you can possibly imagine. 
And that was the end of, you know, kind of the parting shot in Revenge of the Sith. And again, I think they messed up by not having Duke, or um, I'm sorry, by not having Qui-Gon kind of step in as a ghost and say, hi, look what I can do now, and I now you're my Padawan. Um, because that would make the whole Obi-Wan Yoda ghost thing, I don't know, make a little more sense. It would, um, you know, explain why Obi-Wan, maybe a little more, you know, at the end of New Hope, where he just kind of stops, a la Qui-Gon, holds up his saber, and lets himself get strike down. Um, you know, I think Qui-Gon sacrificed himself to drive Obi-Wan. I think Obi-Wan sacrificed himself to drive Luke. Um, and I think both Obi-Wan, Luke, and Yoda, or I'm sorry, Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon, and Yoda, by that point, all knew, look... I'm going to die. It doesn't matter. I can still train you. you know, I can still train you. I'm off the radar. Vader and the Emperor think I'm dead. You know, uh, levitate those rocks, pick up that R2 unit, and, you know, uh, pick up my dry cleaning. You know, it's, you know, it was just one of those minor points that I thought, you know what, give Liam Neeson uh, 5K to show up on set for one day. Uh, you know, have him just stand there. He could, you know, he could be reading from the dictionary. You guys will come in in post-production <laughs> and give him a voice. Um, you know, uh, I just thought, you know, as, as notorious as Lucas is for pickup yeah. shots, come on, where was that one? You know, and I think the audience needed to see that. You know, I mean, we're not all Star Wars fans. Some of us just want to be entertained. And we, and, and when you have to stop and apply logic to something like this, you get pulled out of the movie. I think, I... Um, and to kind of, not to disagree with your, your, your point about, um, you know, uh, the, the, you know, how good wanted to triumph over evil, at least the methodology. But I think really what happened was Lucas came around like the serpent chewing on its own tail and in trying to match up New Hope to Revenge of the Sith just kind of went, ah, oh, crap. I did it too good. Now I got to kind of... I, you know, I, I, I got to throw in loopholes now just to kind of make this match up, sort of. And I think that's why, because we all, I mean, you watch the film, Yoda's winning. Um, you know, they're this close to bringing the whole thing to a, to an end. And it just seems like, you know, the Lucas stepped in and went, Yoda, you know, knock it off. You, you, you got to run to Dagobah now because you got to train a guy in 20 years. Uh, you know, so I don't know. I, I just felt like, Maybe there was a little bit of, um, well, I don't know. Well, I, Jeff, I, I, I really don't have the words for well, it. Well, Jeff, I think the main reason, there. and uh, we'll go ahead and close it with this because we've been recording for about an hour. <laughs> um, I think the wow, main reason sure. is that the prequels were nothing more than a history lesson. We already know how the story is going to pan out. Lucas has got to fill in the blanks. And let's face it, when you've already got the ending and you've got such a tremendous end cap to something, the setting up 
when it's setups and closings, setups and closings into a major setup for the, the new trilogy, I think it can become extremely difficult to keep people guessing because let's face it. One of the greatest, biggest movie reveals in history is the Luke. I am your father. But then we take a look at episode three and Lucas blows his wad when he flat out has the naming of the twins in there, thereby negating the huge surprise that was in the other movies. And it seems like there were a lot of points that were um, kind of almost written off as, well, they were out there before, but they don't have to be now. Right. And I would agree with that. I think that's a good uh, that's a good point to kind of. Well, Jeff, we appreciate you on. taking the time and uh, <laughs> appearing on the show. Absolutely, thanks for having me. And uh, if you ever do another one, and you want to hear my spiel about the Peter Jackson Oliphant scene versus the Irving Kirshner adaptation, we scene absolutely in Empire, you will, Jeff. Cinemafreaks.net. <laughs>